This is Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller. Welcome, friends. Today is our great edition of the Florida Insurance Roundup, and we appreciate you so much for tuning in. We're going to focus today on Hurricane Ian. For those of you who have not been to Southwest Florida, and if you have an opportunity to go, have a reason to go. Go help a shelter, go to one of the food kitchens, or just go be a pal in a nursing home. But whatever you can do, all of us can do something to help those affected. We have seen the devastation of what Hurricane Ian has done to the beautiful counties in Southwest Florida. Some call it paradise. The flood, the wind, and the devastation, and the stories that we've heard over and over again. A much heralded story by all the TV stations, all the radio stations, and many others who will have stories to tell about this storm for years. We're going to talk today about what is going to be an ongoing discussion among insurance adjusters, insurance companies, policyholders, lawyers, community leaders. And the question is this, how was the home damaged? How was a home completely destroyed? What and who should pay for the damage? And how should people rebuild? Today, I'm pleased to announce that we have Tom Diana, a very seasoned insurance defense lawyer who I've known for almost 25 years, and he has made it his life's work to study damage, how it's caused, who should pay for it, and and how we can make sure that policyholders are treated fairly when it comes to assessing the damage to their most prized asset, their home. So I'm going to let Tom introduce himself in this very informal discussion back and forth that he and I will have. And I look forward to hearing from you, those listeners that take the time to engage with us on these various topics. And I thought it would be very timely to talk about some of the damage discussions post-Ian. Tom, Diana, thank you for being here today. Tell the audience about you and from whence you come and what you do, my dear. Uh, Thank you, Lisa. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I don't know if it's my life's work, but it has been my life's work uh, to deal with these very issues since the 2004 2005 hurricanes that hit the Gulf Coast and the state of Florida. And uh, through our law firm at Zenober, Diana, and Monteverdi, um, we typically handle these issues every day and probably will be handling these issues every day for the next five or so years after Hurricane Ian as uh, these uh, legal decisions go forward through the courts. And I believe there will be many of those decisions. Let's kick it off today and talk about flood versus wind. In my conversations with the NOAA the National, and the National Hurricane Center and many other scientists that have been to the area, they talk about the high water mark. They talk about where you can see where the surge pushed the structure uh, many feet. And, you know, talk about what happens when adjusters come on the scene and should they be looking at watermarks, trees down, holes in roofs? What's your best advice to those that are adjusting a claim when they show up at a, at, a, at a property address and either there's no home there or there's damage? What should they look for in flood versus wind? Well, first and foremost, you, you take care of the homeowner, the policyholder, the occupants 
and make sure that they are taken care of, that they're safe, and that nothing is going to happen to them immediately, whether it be by uh, you know a structure that's in danger of potentially collapsing or that's not secure from uh, people who may want to invade it. Um, that's really first and foremost. And I, I think that kind of goes without saying. Almost every adjuster, uh, engineer, uh, insurance professional that I've ever worked with um, ha- has put that uh, the safety and well-being of the occupants and, and property owners paramount uh, and first and foremost. Secondarily, uh, uh, a lot of the things that you just described are, are things that adjusters are looking at. I just wanted to point out that what I've seen in Hurricane Ian are these amazing photographs from satellite images or uh, planes that have flown over the area and they are property-specific images of dwellings and structures, uh, residential, uh, commercial residential properties, homeowners associations. We're getting these wonderful photographs in real time. Uh, you know, as soon as 24 to 48 hours after uh, Hurricane Ian. So, in addition to uh, what you're saying about what the adjuster sees when they get out there. One of the advantages that all adjusters will have is the fact that, you know, by the time people get out to a certain property, it could be days later, um, could be weeks later in some circumstances. It's really hard for the adjuster at that point to recreate what may have happened at the time Ian impacted that particular property. So uh, and to anyone who's listening, that's uh, part of an adjustment of the loss. I would highly encourage you to subscribe to uh, those uh, types of software that are out there. That, so you can match up what was happening at the time the event came through uh, to what you're seeing at the time you're actually out there. I think that's very important. So all these resources that are available to adjusters and to insurance companies and to policyholders, I think, and maybe you can help uh, substantiate and, and even expand, I think it becomes a part of the ongoing adjustment discussion. And I want to remind those that are listening that are talking to policyholders, adjusting claims is, is, a macro, is, a, is a large discussion. It's a discussion with the homeowner and the adjuster about the home itself and the contents in the home and, the, and what has happened to the structure. And I think insurance can be very intimidating. And I try to encourage policyholders to have a conversation with their adjuster and to tell them everything they know. And in many cases, policyholders are taking pictures themselves. So what is your advice to both policyholders who may be listening and to adjusters on how we crystallize the damage and make it, uh, you know, as a pictorial, if you will, for desk adjusters that are inside offices to get the true picture of that damage? What's your advice, Tom? Yeah, uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I I don't often get a chance to talk to policyholders. I hope that policyholders and a lot of policyholder professionals, uh, uh, public adjusters are listening uh, or tune in. You mentioned it, that it's a continued dialogue between insurance company and the policyholder. It should not be an adversarial process. A lot of our great courts in the state of Florida have put similar language into their opinions. Uh, One of which that I can't remember the name of the case, but it said, you know, adjusting an insurance loss is not a one way street. You know, it's a two way street. Uh, It's a conversation. It's a continued dialogue. Just because an adjuster is out there on day 10 
uh, doesn't mean that the policyholder can't share with them what's happened to the property between day one and day nine. And we do see a, a lot of adversarial positions being taken, uh, and that's really unfortunate. Um, most of the adjusters that I deal with, almost all of them, want to get everything right the first time. If they get it right the first time, they don't have to do it a second time. Um, and that's you know, really what the adjustment of the claim is all about. So the more information that can be collected at the time the adjuster is out at a property, the better off the homeowner and property owner is going to be, uh, the better off the adjuster is going to be, and the better off the company is going to be, because they'll be able to make a decision more accurately and more quickly, rather than waiting on information that may arguably exist. You mentioned, you know, we all carry computers around in our pocket these days, and nothing happens in my household without my wife taking a picture of it. Um, so uh, in circumstances where policyholders are out there for the first time, uh, I would expect a lot of them to be snapping pictures and sharing that with, you know, uh, folks, because you mentioned the devastation that, that happened in certain areas as a result of Hurricane Ian is, is obvious. It's been well documented. Now that we've got the adjuster, uh, you know, role kind of defined, the care, concern, and, and caution they have, and being very deliberate in their adjustment, and, and our adjusters are doing the best they can. You know, they've got conditions down there where their housing is very limited. Some of them are doing 10 and 12 houses a day. Let's move to, to an area of discussion that I think will be ensuing, and that's how we determine flood versus wind. And what the courts have said, you know, what are the parameters and the causation and the perils, P-E-R-I-L-S, that we use that term all the time in insurance parlance. But what are the courts saying about flood versus wind? If you can give us some, even of the past storms, some of the big ones, you know, Irma, Sandy, et cetera. And let's see if we can educate some of our listeners on the whole flood versus wind dynamic. It is a continued debate, uh, particularly in the HO3 forms, um, as to which policy covers what. Um, I would encourage all your listeners and anyone who you talk to, we have a tendency as attorneys to complicate things. I, I'm sort of the reverse. I try to simplify things. If you go to FEMA's website, FEMA will tell you there is a flood policy that covers X and there is a wind policy that covers Y. If you go to Florida's Office of Insurance Regulation website, it, it says right on there, water coming into a home from the ground is called flooding and is not covered by your homeowner's policy. Uh, wind damage is covered by almost all HO3 policies. And that's literally what is there on the on the uh, Office of Insurance Regulation website. So sometimes you, you really want to simplify things like that. In 2004, 2005, we had a lot of hurricanes hit. Uh, 2006, Katrina, uh, you know, didn't didn't really impact Florida all that much, but had a devastating impact on uh, uh, obviously New Orleans, Mississippi, um, and a, there was a lot of case law that came out of that uh, as carriers struggled with the adjustment of losses and determining what's covered and not covered under the HO3 policy, at least. 
pretty pretty clear what's covered under a flood policy, and it's pretty specifically defined. I found in my personal career that unfortunately there are an overwhelming number of homeowners or policyholders who do not purchase flood coverage, either because they don't have to or their mortgage company is not requiring them to or whatever the case may be. But most of these disputes that I've been involved with come uh, where there is a obvious damage to an insured property that was predominantly caused by a flooding event. That gets really complicated for the policyholder and for the insurance company to understand. Lawyers make arguments on both sides, and eventually the courts weigh in and make rulings. My experience uh, uh, specifically was with Hurricane Ivan that struck the panhandle in 2005. Ivan was overwhelmingly a storm surge event. The winds associated with Hurricane Ivan were not very strong comparatively uh, to, um, uh, you know, the degrees of hurricanes that we see, right, in terms of ranking them, category one, two, all that stuff. And um, what you did have were a lot of people along the coast in the panhandle whose, whose properties were damaged by flood. Not so much damage by wind. We did not have those wonderful satellite images that I was talking about earlier. Uh, so we really had to look at high water marks, um, uh, roofs and, and, and structures that were above the flood line to see whether or not those had been wind damaged. And uh, a very good plaintiff policyholder attorney here in the state of Florida uh, had previously gotten a ruling out of the Fourth District Court of Appeal in a case called Mirzwa. I'll never forget it uh, because I lived it for about four years. And basically what was argued successfully in the Mirzwa case was that a policyholder could recover a total loss from both its wind carrier and its flood carrier even though there's only one house. <laughs> and uh, Florida's value policy law allowed for that interpretation at the time, which the courts made. And uh, that was a 2005 opinion that came right in and around the times that those storms were hitting the state of Florida. It made it absolutely impossible for carriers to do anything except for pay total losses in a lot of circumstances, because what the Mirzwa opinion held was that if a house was wiped away by flood and only the slab remained, meaning there's nothing there for the wind carrier to look at, right? Um, they, they could recover their full policy limits and also under the value policy law get paid their dwelling limits for the wind coverage. Um, terrible opinion. The value policy law changed in 2007 to specify what triggers a total loss or constructive total loss. Um, there was a case called uh, Florida Farm Bureau versus Cox. Uh, it's a Florida Supreme Court opinion that came out and said Mirzwa is completely overruled and doesn't exist anymore. But there were some real horror stories from that event. And the reason why I mention that is because a policyholder attorney is trying to do right by their client, maximize recovery, 
Um, I understand that. But certain opinions and arguments are made that take the wind policy outside of what it was intended to be covered all along, which was the wind. Uh, flood insurance is required for the flood. Uh, the real difficulty with Ian now, uh, and all storms for that matter, is going to be when there is evidence of flood damage and wind damage in the same room at the same property, what is covered by the HO3 and what is not. Do you believe that there are engineering firms that are able to help us with that determination? Is there science behind what is covered and what is not between flood versus wind? Not really. I mean, scientists and engineers especially are effective in evaluating uh, the physical evidence that exists at a site. Um, you know, there's a case out of Mississippi that comes to mind. I think it was a USAA case um, where it dealt with this very issue after Hurricane Katrina. And <laughs> what had happened in that particular case is, like I described earlier, there was a wind event and a flood event that combined to cause a lot of damage to a particular property. Uh, the policyholders had an engineer that completely agreed with everything that the USAA engineer said, except the policyholder engineer opined that, well, the wind came along before the flood damage destroyed this house. And it's my opinion that this property was completely damaged by wind before it was even damaged by flood. So therefore, the proximate cause of the loss, let's say, was wind. Um, now, of course, those, those uh, uh, people had flood insurance and they had a very large home and had recovered their flood insurance policy. But uh, USAA had, had taken a position that the portion of the loss that was covered was around $50,000. And uh, the jury ended up awarding uh, the policyholders a lot more than that based on the scientists' uh, opinion. Um, so they are effective in calling balls and strikes and providing the opinion after the fact. But what I found to be more effective uh, is like a, in, in litigating anyway, is like I referred to earlier, the visual evidence the video, the photographs, things of that nature are very important uh, for your engineers, uh, uh, but also for people on both sides, because it really is a common sense equation, right? What do you hear when you're in the middle of these cases on flood versus wind? What are the arguments on either side? I've heard the wind pushes the water and the water pushes the house. I've heard the wind pushes the house into the water. What what are, I mean, I don't know what, and just kind of give us some color on if you're standing in a courtroom or even having a debate with an insurance company on flood versus wind, what are some of the discussion points? Yeah, well, sure. But now we're showing our collective age, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's what we dealt with all the time. Those arguments were, hey, the wind pushed the water into the house and therefore covered. Um, a lot of the insurance policies have been updated by this point. They, they, they include those magic words of whether driven by wind or not. Um, this is excluded. Uh, and, you know, hurricane, of course, wind damage is 
covered uh, for the most part, uh, subject to a few exceptions, right? So the main debate uh, these days, and uh, again, this hasn't really happened in Florida since Ivan. Uh, Hurricane Irma was predominantly a wind event. Most of the other tropical storms and hurricanes that have hit have been either, you know, almost exclusively flood or exclusively wind. Ian is really that Ivan type of storm that had high winds combined with storm surge. Um, and so that's really the closest analogy that I can draw in, in my experience. Um, you asked what what kind of arguments I've heard. I, I have heard a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, most recently, uh, as just an example that I, I think listeners would find comedy in, uh, a policyholder had, had called up his insurance company and spent 16 minutes on the phone on a recorded line saying that there was water, it was coming in from the storm, there, there's flooding, water is everywhere, um, you need to come out here, expressing the urgency of the situation. Uh, by the time the adjuster came out there, um, uh, they evaluated it. They, they realized that the home was underwater during the flood and the carrier denied the claim. A supplement was then presented to the insurance carrier thereafter where a public adjuster was insisting that a hose bib on the outside exterior of the home had actually caused all of the flooding to the inside of the home. Now we're talking about thousands and thousands of gallons of water that were inside of this home, right? So what nobody knew about uh, until it got into litigation, at least nobody on the other side knew about, was the fact that there was this recorded call of the policyholder at the time of the loss talking about, you know, hey, my house is full of water. Um, and the street is underwater and all my neighbor's houses are underwater. And uh, yeah, he had a problem, but his problem was that which a flood policy would cover. And unfortunately, he didn't have one. So you do see things like that on occasion. Um, uh, but more often than not, uh, you see a claim being reported by a policyholder. And in, in, in all fairness to all sides. And the policyholders do not know the distinction between flood and wind. They know that their house and property has been damaged. Um, insurance professionals on the inside of the companies will know what was covered and what wasn't covered in a lot of circumstances, but there will absolutely be cases. I have seen hundreds, if not thousands at this point in my career where there's wind damage and there's flood damage to the same property, sometimes to the same room. And that makes it very difficult for all parties to determine what the insurance policy covers and what it excludes. So, Tom, just so our audience is aware, I know there's a, a body of law out there about this issue of flood versus wind. Can you just give us some of the, I'll call it the treetops of that, some of the court cases? that have been out there so they can be aware of them, maybe look them up on their own or we'll put them in the show notes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's my specialty, right? Adjusting claims is not, but uh, the main case that you're probably going to hear a lot throughout, 
you know, any litigation that comes out of Hurricane Ian is a case called SIBO versus American Home Assurance. And SIBO, uh, uh, Mr. SIBO, uh, went all the way up to the Florida Supreme Court with his particular case. It was not a hurricane case, but it, it involved the interplay between rainwater coming into Mr. SIBO's house and causing extensive damage as a result of construction defects which were not covered, and some other excluded losses that, that, that were absolutely not covered. So the insurance company uh, had denied Mr. Sebo's claim in part, and they went all the way up to the Florida Supreme Court. Uh, and eventually the Florida Supreme Court uh, made a decision that in Florida, uh, where two independent perils converge and no single loss can be considered the sole or proximate cause, a doctrine called the concurring cause doctrine would be applied. And the concurrent cause doctrine provides, pretty simply, that where a concurrent cause of the loss cannot be determined, there is coverage under the terms of the policy. And that particular case, ever since it was handed down in 2016, has been litigated over and over and over again. It has uh, been expanded or attempted to be expanded by uh, policyholder advocates. Um, we have tried to limit the uh, application of it. And very interestingly, if you look at what Mr. Sebo submitted uh, in his briefs to the Florida Supreme Court, Mr. Sebo himself and his attorneys said, hey, this is covered because there is no anti-concurrent causation language in the American Home Assurance Policy that would prevent it. Mr. Sebo made repeated comments in his briefs to the Florida Supreme Court to that effect. The Florida Supreme Court touched on it in their opinion. They basically pointed to the pollution exclusion, which had anti-concurrent causation language. And they said that American Home Assurance did not have policy language that would apply to exclude the damage that Mr. Sebo was seeking. So what does that all mean, right? Well, of course, you have opinions that go in all different directions. Before Sebo, there was a case called Liberty Mutual versus Martinez, which upheld anti-concurrent causation language. There was a, an opinion that came after SIBO in 2018 called Citizens versus Salky, or the maybe Salky versus Citizens. That was a sinkhole case where they talked about anti-concurrent causation. And then in uh, 2020, you had the Third District Court of Appeal in the case of Security First Insurance Company versus Saluzniak came out and kind of put this issue to rest in terms of what the policy covers. Uh, and it's it specifically said, uh, the Third District Court of Appeal, that is, specifically said, when the insurer explicitly avoids the application of the concurring cause doctrine by using anti-concurrent cause language, the plain language of the policy precludes recovery. And what does that mean? So that means Anti-concurrent causation is that paragraph that introduces Section 1 exclusions, paragraph 1. It talks about a specific event 
being excluded regardless of anything else that happens concurrent with or in any sequence to the loss or in any combination. Um, there are a lot of different languages out there. So the Seleuzniak case is really going to control the guiding principles associated with the flood versus wind debate because most water damage exclusions fall under paragraph one of section one exclusions, which has anti-concurrent causation language. Um, that means that if technically, if flood and wind uh, or rainwater, let's say, combine to cause a loss to a specific item of personal property or a specific area of damage, technically, that is covered by the flood policy and not the wind policy. And that's a strict reading of Seleuzniak. Now, I think what you're going to see are a lot of uh, claims where engineering professionals, uh, uh, maybe some other scientific professionals uh, uh, come into court and provide an opinion similar to what I was talking about earlier in Mississippi with respect to the um, uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, and uh, 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 the sequence of events associated with a, a complete and total loss. Um, I think you'll see those arguments being made and. I think, generally speaking, the facts of an individual loss are really going to guide the outcome of a lot of uh, uh, trial court decisions and a lot of uh, appellate court decisions by the time these matters proceed through the courts. If you walk into a house and it's on, you know, it's a single level, single story house, uh, and you see an obvious flood line in the living room, but you also look up at the ceiling and you see water spots on the ceiling. You go up to the roof and you see obvious roof damage, obvious area where water is intruding. Just because flood also contributed to the damage in the living room, to me, does not mean that the entire loss or living room is excluded by the wind policy because certainly the flood didn't damage the ceiling in that particular area, and it certainly didn't damage the roof in most cases. So those are situations where I think adjusters are, are, are better off uh, evaluating that particular room or house uh, as if there was a clear area where flood, right, the carpet, the tile flooring, that is probably not damaged by wind, but the ceiling, the roof, those types of things certainly are not damaged by flood and therefore probably should be covered under the terms of a uh, wind policy. I think those will be very helpful to those that are trying to sort out what is the current lay of the land, what are the current court doctrines that are out there, and I think it'll be very instructive as some of these cases may go to court. Thank you so much for that, Tom. So I think your advice to homeowners and to adjusters is document, document, document what you can see and what you think is there. If the homeowner has flood insurance, the homeowner should require the flood adjuster and the property adjuster, the wind adjuster, be there at the same time. And that's very difficult. And we often say to our property slash wind adjuster, if you will, that they make that a 
a request of the homeowner to try and get the flood adjuster there so they can collaborate. Do you think that solves some of the problem, Tom? Well, well that would be great, but it, it, practically it's it's nearly impossible. Logistically, it's nearly impossible. And it would just cause the policyholder to wait. What What I always encourage all homeowners to do is to report the claim to both carriers at the same time. A lot of times a claim only gets reported by agents or by insurance to one and not the other. Um, so uh, a lot of the times I have seen uh, a you know hurricane adjuster, wind adjuster come along weeks or months after the flood adjuster had already been out there. And the second adjuster has no idea that the flood adjuster was already out there. And that creates a lot of complications for all parties involved, particularly the policyholder, because a lot of times by the time that adjuster gets out there, they'll say, hey, a lot of this looks like flood damage. It doesn't look like wind damage. Um, when there's evidence out there that uh, would tell them what was covered at the time earlier by water or flood, um, which would help them evaluate and estimate and scope the damage associated with wind. My funniest example uh, in that respect was a was a home that was completely washed away by flood during Hurricane Ivan. It was nothing more than a slab. You would barely know that the house existed if you looked at it. The homeowner had reported a flood claim which was not available to the wind adjuster. Uh, the claim was later reported to her wind carrier who came out months after the, the storm and started taking pictures of the house. And, you know, if you looked at pictures of the house, you, you would think nothing wrong with this house whatsoever. The wind carrier's adjuster was in the wrong house. <laughs> he was taking pictures of the neighbor's house. Wow. And it took all parties involved uh, 10 months worth of litigation to figure out that the photographs did not match up with what had existed at the time. Uh, the house that was actually insured was gone. Uh, it was completely gone. Tom, this has been very educational. I think we'll put several documents in our show notes. There's a lot of material about and a lot of photos um, with respect to the to the flooding, you know, you think of how many homes have been devastated in that area. There are hundreds, thousands of adjusters in the area. You know, I often say that a delayed claim is a more expensive claim and more inconvenient for a policyholder. So I know that these adjusters are working as fast as they can to get the adjustments in from the field, get them into their respective insurance companies, have the insurance companies deliberate back and forth with the policyholder try to bring these in for a landing. We always have the issue of third parties stepping in. You've heard uh, CFO Patronus in press conferences and throughout the uh, state saying, don't answer your front door. You know, let us help you as a state entity work with your insurance company first. You could always hire somebody if you need to. So some of that advice is being heeded by many of those in the affected area. Um, Tom, I'll let you bring this in for a landing. If you were an adjuster and you show up at a house and that house is gone and all there is is a slab, are, are you anticipating that there will be a collaborative back and forth? Let's assume that the policyholder has flood insurance and has wind insurance. Do you see there being a collaboration between the two or do you think there's just going to be ultimate friction? No, I do at this day. 
at this day, and maybe I'm an optimist, Lisa, but I, I do actually believe that with what's available to us now versus what has been available to us in the past and going through events like Hurricane Ian, we're at a much bigger advantage these days technologically and, and in our minds uh, intelligently. We, we know more. Uh, the courts have, have said more if you want to get technical in terms of the legal aspects of everything. Um, the cases where the slab exists are very easy. You know, the homeowner is in probably the worst day of their life at that point. Okay. Their house and all their worldly possessions have been taken by the storm. So common sense is really the guiding principle behind adjusting a lot of these catastrophic claims. Um, you want to make sure the homeowner is safe. You want to make sure they're taken care of. And you want to make sure to scope that particular loss properly or as accurately as you possibly can. Um, the, even using those common sense principles to the more difficult types of claims where wind, you know, the, the, the house is still there, but there's wind damage, there's rainwater intrusion, there's flooding damage. It's all obvious. You know, use your common sense and your professional aptitude to determine, I think this was wind and I think that was caused by flood. Or I think it was both. You know, in a, in a lot of those determinations, photographs, aerial images, satellite images, all can converge before or even after to assist an engineer or an attorney to evaluate what may or may not be covered. I think if we use everything that's available to us on both sides of this equation, you can absolutely get to a point where the overwhelming majority of these losses can be evaluated, scoped properly, and disposed of before they see the light of day of the courtroom. I am an attorney. That's what I do for a living. Probably 50% or more of the cases that I see should not be even filed. They're, they're mainly with a little cooperation. You can get rid of those claims and cases before they even get into court. And, and finally, uh, I'm glad you mentioned a lot of the predatory tactics that are out there. Um, I have seen them firsthand. I have heard from homeowners. Uh, you mentioned uh, Paradise. Many of my family have relocated to Paradise in their golden years. And there are a lot of people knocking on doors right now uh, under the auspices that they're there to help. Um, I really hope and pray that we do not see the same type of activity that we saw after Hurricane Irma in that respect. And I have spoken since Hurricane Irma with a lot of homeowners who have had no idea that a lawsuit was being brought in their name or on their behalf by companies who may have done a simple thing like put a tarp on top of the roof uh, or things of that nature. It's very alarming because that drives up the cost of everyone's premium. It drives up the cost of everyone's insurance policy. And I think most people on both sides of this debate that's about to ensue will agree to that. The only people who, who won't agree uh, are the people who are undertaking those predatory tactics.
Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. We wanted to get this out to our listeners. Uh, that's a wrap for our Florida Insurance Roundup. You know, so many of you reach out to us after we release these into the marketplace. I hope you'll look at our show notes. My email address is Lisa Miller at Lisa Miller Associates. Dot com Lisa Miller at Lisa Miller Associates.com. Happy to connect you with Tom or any of the other scientists that are there. I even uh, chatted with an engineering firm today that's been hired by FEMA to do an inundation report to look at how much rain had come down from the sky and how much water it collected in certain areas because the water had nowhere to go. We had had so much water uh, previous to the storm. So lots of moving parts. And I'm also hopeful that our listeners will Google online the Animal Refuge Center in Southwest Florida. All of you know that they have a passion for animal and animal health and animal care and rescues particularly. And they're working 24-7 because there are so many displaced animals. For those of you that want to volunteer or want to contribute, we'll make sure to put in our show notes a way for you to engage with that organization. I know I will, and I hope that you will as well. But for now, I wish you all well. For those of you in the field, thank you for what you do every day and the public service that you provide to the policyholders of this state. And we salute you for being out in that hot sun, looking at those claims and trying to get them done as quickly as we can. And with that, that's this edition of the Florida Insurance Roundup. We thank you for being with us. And at Lisa Miller and Associates, we have a passion for client success and for getting the good word out when the time comes. Thank you. This has been Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com.